0: And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, November 6th, 2019. Going to switch it up a little bit today. what the most popular? Pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostlelets, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying and studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that is put forward for consumption by the average evangelical Far from biblical, far from what God's word says, and it's just really a mess out there. All of that being said, you'll note that uh, we do some work here at Fighting for the Faith where we do demolition work. Yeah, we got to tear down, but we also got to build up. Yeah, that's also an important part of it. And so on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, I'm going to be tapping the shoulder of my good friend Stephen Kozar of the Messed Up Church blog. And we'll we'll call this series of interviews that we're going to be doing that he's recently do we'll call them Messed Up Interviews, <laughs> just because. <laughs> and so we're going to be listening to a messed up interview with Stephen Kozar and Robert Bowman. Robert Bowman, uh, he's, he's a Christian apologist and uh, author, and years and years and years ago, my first exposure to Robert Bowman is when Robert Bowman worked with the late Walter Martin. And uh, he wrote a book on the uh, doctrine of the Trinity, and it was absolutely fascinating uh, at the time. And, in fact, w- the name of the book was called Why You Should Believe in the Trinity, an Answer to Jehovah's Witnesses. But that's not what we're going to be talking to him about. Stephen Kozar is going to be talking with Robert Bowman about his book that he published back in 2001 called The Word-Faith Controversy, Understanding the Health and Wealth Gospel and uh, hopefully this will be a good resource for you. But uh, if you can get a copy of that book, do so, because it is a very helpful book in understanding properly what does the Word of Faith heresy teach, where does it really come from, what what were the influencers on it, like E.W. Kenyon and others, and what did they believe, and where were they in error? It's important for us to recognize that. So hopefully this will be a... a a good resource for you. We'll take a break partway through the interview, but let's get to it. Here's uh, our messed up interview with uh, Stephen Kozar interviewing Robert Bowman.
1: Here we go. Okay, I am on the phone right now with Rob. Well, can I call you Rob, or should I call you Robert Bowman Jr., your official author uh, name? You can, um,
2: I mean, somewhere, it may be in the introduction, you can introduce me by the full name, yeah. but then we can just say Rob. Okay, and- good.
1: Do you well, go by Steve? I go by Steve, even though you know my my art name, my full name is Steven. it's only my mother in law that calls me Stephen or somebody who <laughs> might or somebody who might want to buy a painting if they call me Stephen, I can jack up the price about thirty percent on my artwork. by so. the
2: way, I went to your facebook page you're you're great your your artwork is wonderful
1: oh, thank you for the free commercial. I appreciate that
2: <laughs> I was, <laughs> I'm happy for you to keep that on the recording because i I was very impressed.
1: Well, thank you. Well, and it's interesting it's too interesting. because I um there's a lot of sort of strange connections to me being an artist and now my work as a quote unquote discernment blogger or whatever you want to call it. I'm I'm 54. I've been a kind of a mainstream evangelical for most of my for, from high school all throughout my adult life and most of that time was spent focusing on being an artist and I don't regret that. However, I kind of went with the flow of mainstream evangelicalism and became more and more dissatisfied with my lack of real solid biblical understanding of most things. And uh, over the last six, seven, eight years, I just said, "Man, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop this ignorance. I'm I'm not going to just accept what everybody tells me, and I'm going to get more information. And really, and and because I'm this really detailed painter, I think that's just a person. I'm, I'm borderline OCD." So when I want to research something, I don't want to just get a thumbnail sketch. I want to know all the details. And that's why I just love the kind of scholarship that you do. And I and I love this book. By the way, um, I didn't even introduce what we're going to do here. We're going to talk about your book, The Word-Faith Controversy, subtitled Understanding the Health and Wealth Gospel, which you wrote, what, 2001? I, I think. believe that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um This is the best book, and I got a stack of books on this topic, but I really think this is the best book to explain what's going on in the New Apostolic Reformation or the hyper-charismatic world that we live in today, even though you wrote it 17 years ago. All of the stuff that you uh, did a wonderful job of critiquing and explaining and really digging into deeply, it's very relevant today. If anybody's Confused by the teachings of uh, Bill Johnson or Todd White or Mike Bickle or Rick Joyner or Brian Houston in the Hillsong Church. All of those people have um, fundamental connections to the Word of Faith movement. So, um, anyway, thank you for being on my little podcast. I um I feel like I'm talking to a rock star honestly. I I got to say Well,
2: I... <laughs> you're very kind. Uh you, you're you're a rock star in your artwork so uh for, for sure I think that's a more appropriate analogy. <laughs> I think what people 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 can get can get from my book hopefully which doesn't talk about the the current uh, crop of uh of teachers that you mentioned directly. Right. Uh but what they can get from it is a way of thinking through the issues. Right and understanding the foundational theological questions and problems that are inherent in a lot of this teaching on health and prosperity. Uh, So even though the teachers change and some of the rhetoric changes, uh, and even some of the ideas and explanations might change a little bit, uh, what I've done in the book is to provide a kind of uh, uh, introduction to the kinds of issues that Keep coming up over and over throughout the last two or three, gen- maybe even four generations now, mm-hmm. of people that have espoused similar ideas.
1: Well, and Kenneth Copeland is still around, so you've quoted him a lot. Seventeen years ago, yeah, and he's still doing.
2: Kenneth Copeland, uh, uh, Benny Hinn, Benny Hinn? Uh, you know Charles Caps. Many people haven't heard of him, but he's he's very popular in this movement. Right, uh, very influential uh so yeah uh some some people that are still around, and some that aren't
1: well, but and, the and ideas
2: are still with, with exactly.
1: us exactly. the ideas are still with us, and i I would warn uh anybody listening that if you ever hear a guy from a podium, especially a really famous guy who says, "God just told me this
3: <laughs> number
1: number one, question it right off the bat, <laughs> question it big time compared to scripture, but I think that uh ninety nine times out of a hundred. He didn't just get the idea out of thin air. He read a book. He listened to some other guy. And a a prime example of that is Todd White. And one of the reasons I was really interested in your book is that Todd White claims to be this kind of new guy with all these new ideas who uh, even claims that he doesn't read books. He's never read any book except the Bible. And yet... There's a video where he claims that he read uh, Kenneth Copeland's book, and it really influenced him a lot. And when you hear him talk, you're just basically listening to a a new version of Kenneth Copeland. And that's, again, why I think your book is really relevant. So I'm not going to go through the whole book, and I I, I wish we could, and maybe we will uh, get into more detail. But I want to focus on just a couple of things, and we'll see how much time that takes. Uh, One of the most popular books that emerged in the late 80s was D.R. McConnell's book, A Different Gospel which I actually bought when it was new, and I wish I would have remembered the stuff that I read in that book because I read it, and then 10, 15 years later, I was in a uh, form of church, and I was part of a form of theology that really had already been refuted by much of what D.R. McConnell said in that book. But there are some things that have been updated in your book. There are some things that uh, your book shows that McConnell was... Painting with too broad a brush in some ways, it wasn't that he said anything inherently wrong; he just maybe simplified things too much. Is that a maybe a good way to kind of start the conversation on that issue?
2: Well that's one way of uh, one aspect of it the some oversimplification there's some uh, uh some drawing of lines you know uh in terms of uh, pr- arguing for historical influence uh that ignore other possible sources. Uh, for the word-faith teaching, and so uh, understanding what some of those other sources are and noticing, and this is where I think McConnell's analysis really uh, was at its weakest, noticing differences between the word-faith of faith doctrine and the metaphysical cults as well as the similarities it is important if we're going to give a judicious and historically reliable, historically valid account of the origins of the movement and of its relationship to the other movements that preceded it. And that's what I think he didn't do adequately. Now, you know, he's one of the first uh, individuals to write uh, on the subject in terms of trying to give an historical account. So, uh, you know, and he he did a lot of good work there, uh, but Uh, you know, that's the nature of scholarship is (laughs) somebody puts forth a a bold thesis and somebody comes along and says, well, not exactly. uh, Let's look at this a little bit differently. And it's not a personal criticism. It's just the way scholarship works.
1: That's a really good point. And I I find that um, a number of people that uh, are in my audience and in the Pirate Christian Media audience, they've come out of a really um, messed up church. (laughs) That's the name of my podcast. And so they're angry. They, they have sort of had their eyes open to all the false teaching that they were uh, being surrounded by. And I think it's not unusual to have an overreaction and to go to the worst possible conclusion about everybody in a movement, because, you know, you have a, you have a real emotional, angry response and um, that's understandable, but at some point we need to be mature. We need to kind of take a step back on our emotions and, and say, what, 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 what did the word of faith movement actually teach and what are they currently teaching and not to paint with too broad a brush. Um, and b- before we go further, I also, you mentioned a, a phrase, and I want you to clarify it for our listeners in case they haven't heard the phrase before metaphysical cults. What does metaphysical mean and what are you referring to? I know what you're referring to, but just let's clarify <laughs> sure, that first. Sure.
4: Uh,
2: well, the term metaphysical cults and, and maybe You know, instead of cults, we could say uh, sects or, or, you know, the metaphysical movement. Yeah. Uh, Same thing. Uh, That term refers to a rather loosely associated group of teachers, books, uh, groups, uh, institutional organizations, publishing houses, etc., that come out of the 19th century— mostly out of the uh, American and, and English uh, cultural context, especially America, and that advocated, and still do because they're still around, advocated a, a kind of religious version of mind over matter, mm-hmm. to put it very simply. Sure, yeah. And so uh, the by metaphysical is meant uh, the belief that The nature of reality, which is what metaphysics is about, the nature of ultimate reality uh, is not what it seems to be, uh, which is, you know, in a very secularized society, it seems to be a merely material world, uh, but that, according to the metaphysical movement, what's really ultimate, uh, what's really real (laughs) is mind, and This is interpreted, generally speaking, in something along the lines of a pantheistic worldview, in which all is divine, all is God. What is ultimately real is only the divine, which is mind, and we are simply manifestations of mind. And once we understand that, we can manipulate our experiential life, our experiential uh, dimension of the material world which isn't ultimately real but is dependent on and answerable to the mind. And so that's the the, the cash value if I and I think it's an appropriate expression here, the cash value of the metaphysical doctrine according to its advocates is that it once you understand it and apply it, you can make your life prosperous, successful, happy, healthy, uh you can become on top of the world. Uh you can get rich, uh, you, can be, you can overcome your uh, diseases and illnesses, uh, you can overcome your uh, difficulties in life, you can become a, a stronger, happier, healthier, and, and more prosperous individual, but the key here is that you have to apply these principles from the metaphysical uh, religious interpretation of reality that they put forth. Now, the line between this movement and just general American pop psychology of uh, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, straps and you can do it if you put your mind to it and all that, the line between these are, is pretty thin. Right. And some people who have been associated with the more generic, popular uh, success gospel have been influenced by teachers in the metaphysical movement.
1: You know, uh, so that's what it is. Yeah. And, and, in in simple terms, Phineas Quimby is what everybody agrees is the most influential American thinker, writer from the mid-1800s. And his ideas were utilized and frankly plagiarized by Mary Baker Eddy in the Christian Science, Church of Christian yes. Science.
2: Uh, yes, she directly derived some of her ideas and even some of her language yeah. uh, at times from Quimby. And uh, in turn, Quimby and Eddie influenced a whole bunch of different people in the second half of the 19th century right. uh, and into the 20th century. It, most of them ended up going somewhat different directions than Eddie. It, in a way, funny enough, Christian Science, or the Church of Christ Scientists that she established, is, represents what you could, as I said ironically, call the conservative wing of the metaphysical movement. Hmm. There's only one truth. There's only one true religion, and it's Christian Science. <laughs> and Mary Baker Eddy is the prophet. You know uh, that kind of mentality. Whereas in most of the metaphysical uh, teachings, uh, all religions have truth in them. Uh, there, no, no one denomination or sect is the answer to everything. Uh, the 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 uh, the key is to learn from everything and, and pull it all together in a very syncretistic and uh, uh, almost cafeteria-style uh, mm-hmm. approach to truth. And so that, that tends to be the dominant form of uh, metaphysical thinking uh, going forward. And, and today, of course, Christian science has very much waned. It's not very popular at all. It's lost most of its members. But the metaphysical tradition has marched on and, and grown and morphed. Uh, a large segment of it, uh, became what we used to call the new age movement. Right. And, uh, so, I mean, that it, it, it's, that's been the more, uh, influential segment of, uh, of the movement. And not surprisingly, when you see some similarities between some of the things these people are saying and things that are being said in the word of faith movement, it's natural to think maybe there might be some kind of connection. And that's at the, bottom of what D.R. McConnell was doing in his book, A Different Gospel.
1: Right. He was, he was uh, seeing the similarities and, especially because E.W. Kenyon actually had done some learning in a metaphysical environment. He made the assumption or the, uh, maybe assumption is not the right word. He, he draw the conclusion based on what information he had that E.W. Kenyon was, largely influenced by metaphysical ideas as opposed to anything else. And your book right. shows that if you look at E.W. Kenyon's actual ideas, he had less in common with the metaphysical sects and more in common with the Keswick movement and the holiness movement and uh, movements that were still Christian movements.
2: Yes, that's right. I mean, the basic logic of McConnell's argument is uh, – Kenyon was in the right place at the right time to be influenced by the metaphysical groups uh, in in Boston and even for a while at Emerson College, uh, where Transcendentalism and New Thought, New Thought was a a major player in the metaphysical movement, where that was being taught. And then you notice some interesting parallels between Kenyon's doctrine and the doctrine of New Thought thinkers. uh, And you say, QED. There's there's a historical connection there. Uh, it's it's an understandable argument. I think it is a mistaken argument, though. I think it's flawed because there were other things being taught in Boston uh, where uh, Kenyon lived and, and by people that he knew personally that we know he was influenced by directly as opposed to allegedly being influenced by people like Trine and other uh, new thought thinkers. Uh, so I think that we can, sh- and, and frankly, the and this is the other thing that, to keep in mind, the metaphysical movement and the faith cure movement that was popular in the late 19th, early 20th century, among many evangelical and other Christian uh, believers, uh, they had some things in common because they were both American and largely, you know, from a Protestant background, uh, they were products of that same culture. So naturally, there's going to be some similarities. Naturally, there are going to be some parallels. But in on the crucial question of where Kenyon got his ideas and what the historical roots were of his ideas— I come down on the side of he was deriving those ideas from what has been called the evangelical faith cure movement and not from the metaphysical movement.
1: Which is an important distinction because what you're saying is that E.W. Kenyon was not as pagan as a lot of people are describing him today. And the reason that's important is because E.W. Kenyon, and I guess we didn't really preface this, but E.W. Kenyon was the guy whose ideas merged – or, or were uh, were basically plagiarized to a large extent by Kenneth Hagan Kenneth Hagin yeah. took the the some of the primary ideas that E.W. Kenyon wrote about. He he literally plagiarized many of his writings. So what he wrote about in the the teens, twenties, and thirties, they they really became popular through the teachings of Kenneth Hagin, who is right. everyone agrees Kenneth Hagin is the founder of the Word of Faith movement. And that, that's right. And that didn't develop until the 50s and 60s and into this in into the present day, really.
2: If I if I could, let me explain why this is so important sure. to understand. Yep. The first reason is that I think the most important reason why this needs to be understood is because when one talks about the errors of the word of faith movement, which we do need to do. Right. If we have misdiagnosed the source or origin of the movement as deriving from this non-Christian, pluralistic, relativistic, pantheistic movement of the metaphysical cults like New Thought and Religious Science and so forth, if we misdiagnose it that way, then people who are in the Word of Faith movement are going to respond naturally and, I think, appropriately by saying, I don't think that way. Right. I don't see that. And they're going to be predisposed by that misdiagnosis to dismiss any accurate biblical response that one might give to the movement. So, if we're going to be effective in explaining to people in the Word of Faith movement what's wrong with it, we need to make sure we don't blame it on the wrong source. Mm-hmm. The other reason why this is very important is because understanding that this very aberrant movement of the word of faith doctrine originates out of our Protestant Christian cultural religious you know, background is extremely important to understand because it points out to us that it could happen to us. Hmm. It, could happen to, it could happen again. Uh, it's very easy if you think, oh, that's a cultic, heretical, non-Christian doctrine that somehow got uh, sneaked into Christianity as a metaphysical Trojan horse, and those people over there, they're wrong because they're following this pagan, you know, non-Christian doctrine. We, who aren't part of that movement, don't have anything to worry about. That's a misunderstanding. I, I got my eyes open to that in a fresh way, when i was uh, visiting a baptist church and uh, i was in a sunday school class and somebody was asked to lead a prayer and the prayer was straight out of word of faith doctrine
1: hmm.
2: and it was in a baptist church and i i went to, he wasn't the sunday school teacher thankfully but he had been asked to to lead a prayer at the beginning of the class so afterwards i talked to the sunday school teacher and i expressed my concerns but the point that i'm making here is that This doctrine finds a home in evangelical, Protestant, traditional Christian uh, thinking when people are not well-informed and are not discerning. And that's why it's very important for us to understand that this this is what happened. I mean, frankly, most of the heretical and aberrant movements that are of significance in Christianity today, particularly here in America, Uh, the people who started them come out of a Protestant and, in many cases, evangelical background. Hmm. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, I mean, the list goes on and on. And so there's something—that doesn't mean there's something wrong with evangelicalism. That means that there's some awareness that evangelicals need to have uh, to some potential weaknesses uh, that could be exploited— uh, and, and used in a very uh, unhealthy way if we don't pay attention to these kinds of things, sure. if we are not discerning, if we're not biblically literate, if we're not theologically well-informed. Uh, because it's not us and them, it's us and people that used to think like us or thought they were us very often is what we're looking at here.
1: Well, boy, you, you just had a ton of good stuff there. Uh, I was going to insert that uh, one of my favorite things is history, and I got a stack of books. And um, one of my favorite books in the last year is The Democratization of American Christianity by Douglas Hatch, who makes a a really strong case for the American evangelical experience has been one of uh, branching off and dividing up. And everybody's got their Bible, and they're starting from scratch with no regard for what's come before them. And, you know, just send me off on my horseback with my Bible, and I'm going to start my own church. And next thing you know, I've started a new de- denomination because I'm pretty sure I got it right and everyone else has got it wrong. And that uh, partially derived from the American spirit of we just separated ourselves from from uh, England, and we don't like our connection to Europe. We don't like our connection to the Anglican Church, which was the official British church. And so we're starting fresh, just me and my Bible. And there's something great about saying me and my Bible that we we take it serious that it really is God's word, but it quickly morphed into everybody and their brothers got a new version of interpreting the Bible. And it really <laughs> kind of multiplied, you know, th- throughout the uh, time period from the beginning of our country to the turn of the last century, when we have these pagan ideas kind of blending and morphing into uh, largely into the Pentecostal church, but it wasn't just that. It was also in the Holiness movement, the Keswick movement. It's a really interesting topic for me, and I, I, um, I love the idea of Christians doing their homework and finding out where their ideas come from, because it uh, I think it allows us to be a lot more objective, and it also allows us to look at people that we might disagree with, and instead of just saying you're wrong and I'm right, you know, you're you're a heretic you know, these overly simplistic uh, categories that we create, I think it's really healthy to say, you know what, I know what you believe because I've actually studied it and I agree with this and this and this, but I don't agree with that and that and that. But I respect you in these regards and boy, there just isn't a lot of that going on. Again, I think part of it is because that's an American evangelical tendency, you know, to just me and my Bible. I I don't need all this history. I don't need these theologians. I don't need guys like... Robert Bowman Jr., so-called apologist and author, and all of his fancy words <laughs> I don't understand, just me and my Bible. <laughs> and and, I, and I'm, I'm a guy, as a layperson, who's, uh, who's really appreciated the work of theologians and scholars and historians. And even if I don't always agree with everything they say, I can definitely learn from them. Um, I guess I just want to, well,
2: so I think I would say the same thing for myself. I, I've learned from an awful lot of people that I didn't agree with on a number of issues. And, and that's, that, that's how we learn by listening to people we don't agree with and gleaning things from them that, uh, we might not have otherwise have perceived or understood, yeah. you know, what you were saying before about, um, Nathan Hatch's book, Democratization of American Christianity, you could kind of sum it up like this. If people are free to believe anything they want, they will. (laughs) And, uh, you know, (laughs) they, you know, uh, and and that's, that's, uh, that may seem like a downside, but it it really isn't. It's just, the fact is that people don't naturally think the same way as one another and so where you do have unity, it needs to be one that is based on persuasion and uh, commitment, not on force or on, you know, this is just the way everybody else thinks. So I'm just going to fall in line, peer pressure or status quo or something. So, uh, you know, I, I recognize that the splintering of, of American Protestantism is, is disconcerting. mm mm-hmm. Uh, It's disconcerting to me when it's pointless and needless, but it's part of the price that you pay for having the opportunity for people to choose to believe what they're going to believe based on what they're persuaded is the truth and not on something else. Of course, some people are going to choose to believe something because it's comfortable or because they think they're going to get something out of it or whatever it is, and that's, again, human nature. That's part of what we're fighting with the gospel and with biblical Christianity is this tendency of people to want uh, to find something to latch on to for their own self-interest rather than because it brings honor and glory to God and, and because it's the right thing to do and because it's the truth. Right. Those are those are harder to pursue and less uh, fun to pursue, I guess, for many people than uh, what's in it for me. And so that. When you have a very individualistic society, such as we are, uh, those are going to be some of the uh, the unfortunate uh, consequences. But uh, I, then again, it gives us a great opportunity uh, as individuals uh, to seek the truth if we really want it.
0: Right. All right. We're going to pause our messed up interview with Stephen Kozar and Robert Bowman right there. Uh, pay some bills if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address is talkbackandfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on facebook facebook.com forward slash pirate christian follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian quick break when we come back the balance of today's messed up interview with steven Kozar and robert bowman stay tuned don't want to miss it we'll be right back
2: If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the
3: Faith. This is the air, I breathe.
4: This is the air, I breathe. I've had enough. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
5: <clears throat> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. in other news, it seems that the inhabitants of Earth are not the only ones subject to economic slumps. Jensen Franklin, through direct revelation from God, has given us information that says that the unemployment rate within God's own army has drastically risen. Take a listen. The
2: angel came and opened the doors and broke the chains. My point to you is simply this. When you don't pray, angels become unemployed. The greatest tragedy... Of prayerlessness is the unemployment of angels. Because when you pray, God gives angels their their orders. When you pray, the spiritual battle in the heavenlies begins to be armed with the prayers of the saints and people binding, and
3: whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven.
0: Attention angels, this is uh, the Holy Spirit. I have an announcement regarding the
1: uh,
0: latest downturn in the economy. And I understand that a lot of you have been unemployed lately due to a lack of prayer. And I wish there was something that I could do about this, but you know, I feel so powerless when it comes to these kind of things. Um, we, uh, we've uh, created a welfare uh, basket, uh, spiritual relief type of thing. And uh, so those of you who have been hit hard by the latest downturn and are now finding yourselves unemployed, uh, please uh, proceed over to the uh, relief office and uh, we'll see what we can do to help you out. Thank you.
5: All right. All right. Everyone just calm down. Thank you. Now, I know that none of you care to be here, but since we're experiencing a worldwide shortage of prayer, it would behoove you to keep calm and allow us to do our jobs. Gabriel, put your wings down. There's not nearly enough room for that. And Michael, Michael, don't cut in line. I know you're the big cheese around here, but all of us have been affected equally. Wait your turn. Next! What's your name?
0: George. George.
5: George. Whatever. Where'd you fly in from?
0: South Orange County, California.
5: California? That's frontline enemy territory. How many tours you done down in that kill box? About nine. Oh, you're quite the veteran. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's Rick Warren's territory, right?
0: Yeah, he's got most of the people down there praying for purpose, better sex, other useless junk like that. Those idiots don't even realize they don't need God for such things.
5: I hear you on that one. Now, I know it's not much, but this is what I can give you. It's our premium spiritual relief basket.
0: Thank you. I'll be sure to put this to good use.
5: <laughs> I know you will. Next! What's your name, bub? Harold. Okay, Harold. Where you hailing from?
0: Charlotte,
1: North Carolina.
5: Good gravy. You must really be hurting. Everyone knows that Stephen Furtick's neck of the woods is just filled the bisting with heretical slump. Uh, What are they praying for nowadays?
0: It's the strangest thing. They keep praying to the sun, telling it to stand still. I don't get it.
5: Those morons! Don't they know nothing about astrophysics? If they were to stop the sun, they'd burn half the world to a crisp. Moon rocks have higher IQs than those dingbats. All right, got a relief basket for you.
1: I greatly appreciate the help.
5: (laughs) I know, you're welcome. Next! And your name is... Bob. Bob? I swear, angels these days... All right, Bob, lay it on me. Where you from? Vatican City. Vatican City? (laughs) Are those bozos still praying to dead people and inanimate objects? More
4: than ever.
5: You know, that really frosts my cookies. I mean, seriously. Take Mary, for example. That poor woman has been dead for millennia. She's not answering prayers. Who is the dumb schmuck that thought praying to her would do anything in the first place? Humans! They're so darn gullible sometimes. Anyway, here's your relief basket. Oh, yeah. Sorry. it's getting real tired of that. Happens every time I give someone a basket. Next!
3: Welcome to the American Lutheran Theological Seminary. I'm Dwayne Clevin, administrator for ALTS. Our online program, the Master of Arts in Religion, prepares men and women for service in Christ's Church as a commissioned church worker or helper in the ministry of the local congregation. In such roles as deacon or deaconess, director of youth ministries, Bible study leader, or perhaps missionary service, the Master of Arts in Religion degree program builds critical foundations in biblical exegesis and systematic theology forming an orderly and rational account of the doctrines of the Christian faith with emphasis on practical service within the church. These are the persons who assist the pastor as he provides and oversees various kinds of leadership and ministry in the congregation. For example, evangelism, community outreach, or to simply answer the call to serve where God may choose. For more information, please find us on the web at www.alts.org edu, or email our registrar's office at registrar at alts.edu. Thank you.
0: Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today.
4: Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's it's coffee. with milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out!
0: Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the Word of Faith heresy is an actual heresy. Because it is. Just a reminder Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. Uh, The way you partner with us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron via Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And, of course, if you would like to support us the traditional and analog way, you can do so by making your gift payable, too, Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right. Here is the balance of our messed up interview: Stephen kozar interviewing Robert Bowman regarding the Word of Faith controversy. Here we go.
1: Well, and, and we're in the middle of a gigantic experiment in the history of of human beings. The United States of America, a pluralistic country where you have freedom of religion. What? How are you going to do that? And we're still in the middle of it, trying to figure it out. You know, and that's right. We have a, a much more uh, culturally diverse nation now than we did, you know, even 50 years ago, but especially 250 years ago. And, uh, it's, it's a grand experiment and the downside is anybody can believe anything and it's up to us, <laughs> right. you know, to, um, to take seriously what it is we believe. And so going back to, uh, maybe we can try to summarize. Basically everybody agrees that, uh, Phineas Quimby is the most prominent, New Thought leader from the mid-1800s. His ideas splintered off in a million places. It it roughly is similar to what has been called the New Age movement. There's a lot of different different, differentiations between the various beliefs, but that's kind of roughly that category. It's it's a non-Christian belief system. And there are some similarities between that and some of the teachings that are part of the Word of Faith movement. D.R. McConnell and and some others – went to perhaps too strong of a conclusion and said that they just took those pagan ideas and brought them right into the church, when in fact they were probably a lot more hesitant than we give them credit. They were trying to be biblical a little bit more than has been made the case by people like D.R. McConnell. But but nonetheless, they're bad ideas, and they got there somehow, and they need to be yeah. critiqued, and they need to be compared to yeah. Scripture.
2: I think it would be helpful for people to understand, uh, to hear what some of the specifics are here. So, for example, uh, the metaphysical uh, groups like New Thought uh, held, and still do, uh, to the belief that God is a kind of impersonal or transpersonal principle of mind that is the ultimate reality underlying all things. That's a either pantheistic or maybe panentheistic way of thinking about God. God is not the personal creator of the universe, but is the mind that is manifested in the material world. That's a very different worldview. Uh, E.W. Kenyon did not accept that view. The word faith teachers today do not accept that view. Kenyon believed that God is a personal father who created the world, uh, who To whom we have, with whom we have a personal relationship if we believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, So their views of God are extremely different from one another. Uh, The metaphysical groups uh, held to and still teach uh, a kind of esoteric approach to interpreting the Bible. Esoteric means the real meanings of the biblical text are hidden, you can't see them by just reading the text and listening to what it's saying in context, you have to know the hidden meanings of certain words that are symbolically representing something you would never know just by reading the text. Uh, If anything, E.W. Kenyon held to an overly literal way of reading the Bible. He Hmm. took the Bible as the inerrant Word of God, the final authority for all belief, which the metaphysical groups didn't hold, and he sometimes misinterpreted the Bible because he took things literally that shouldn't have been taken literally, Hmm. Uh, So, uh, these are just two examples, we could tick off half a dozen or more, where there is a very significant difference between uh, the metaphysical worldview, the metaphysical belief system, and the beliefs of E.W. Kenyon, whom I call the grandfather of the Word of Faith movement, and same thing for all of the current uh, advocates of it, they just don't hold to these basic concepts that are essential elements of the new thought or metaphysical worldview.
1: Right. Okay. Well, that's, yeah, thank you. That's a really good example. In fact, I love the fact that in your book, you have a chart that says, here's what the new thought people teach, and here's what E.W. Right. Kenyon believed. And you find that he didn't agree with most of those specific beliefs. Exactly. So, and so, there,
2: are some, there are some similarities. And again, the similarities are the result of the fact that they come out of the same cultural setting.
1: Right. Yeah. Okay, so I want to jump, and you, you actually hinted at it, and that is the idea that um, uh, there's an anti-intellectualism that's inherent in Word of Faith teaching, and it comes from their view of man as being a trichotomy, not a dichotomy. And uh, that's in Chapter 6 of your book uh, called Real Men Don't Use Reason. I found this chapter extremely helpful because it not only explains the uh, the trichotomy view of man— But it then explains, here are the results of that view and why they always teach a certain way about certain things. And if you get rid of the trichotomy view of man and you prove that it's actually not very biblical, the entire word of faith uh, theology falls apart. It's a house of cards that's built largely on the trichotomy view of man. Uh, Can you explain that for us a little bit?
2: Uh, Yeah, first of all, let's explain what the trichotomy view of man is. Yep. Uh, it It's the idea that human beings in their fundamental constitution, their nature, have three distinguishable, and I mean rigidly distinguishable parts or aspects to their being, their body, their soul, and their spirit. Now, what's anti-intellectual about this is that the mind is considered to be part of the soul and is rigidly distinguished from the spirit. And according to uh, this particular doctrine uh, of the Word of Faith movement and others who hold to a trichotomy, not all, but but many who hold to it, uh, it is the spirit and not the mind that must uh, come into contact with God, that must Comment that must uh, uh, understand the Bible you don't under, uh, you know, Kenneth Hagen said we don't understand the Bible with our mind, we right. understand it with our spirit
1: in fact, let me read this quote in in the beginning of chapter six. You have a quote at the very top from Kenneth Hagen: We cannot know God through our human knowledge, through our mind. God is only revealed to man through his spirit. It is the spirit of man that contacts God, for God is a spirit. We don't understand the Bible with our mind. It is spiritually understood. We understand it with our spirit or our heart. And uh, right. people have heard that. And that's Kenneth. That's Ken,
2: or people are wondering, that's Kenneth Hagen. Kenneth Hagen. In a book called New Thresholds of Faith. And this is one of many statements like this that Hagen and other Word of Faith teachers have made
1: over the years. And it's, it's funny because and he's, he's teaching you how you really shouldn't be using your mind, but he's using his mind to write down words, and we use our mind to read those words. It's a a really incoherent uh, view of things, but they use it so often that I think a lot of people have just assumed, well, this must be biblical because that's all I've ever heard. And, you know, here it is, the year 2018, and there are people who have heard nothing but word of faith theology their entire lives. So if they stumble upon this podcast, they're going to think we're crazy, but— you know, uh, so the trichotomy let me, view of man... Let, let me
2: explain why, If, I, if I'm sorry. No, go I, ahead. Let me also explain why this is so fundamental or foundational to the word of faith doctrine, and particularly the part of the doctrine that we find objectionable and unbiblical. If, in the trichotomy view, as at least as these teachers uh, interpret it and apply it, The spirit is distinguished from the soul and the body. The spirit, therefore, according to these individuals, and this is a way of speaking that is very common, the spirit is the real you. Right. Uh, Copeland says, uh, the the spirit, or Kenyon said, the spirit is the real man. Uh, And uh, and this is a very common way of putting things. So if the spirit is the real you, then according to these teachers, your real being is the same kind of being as God, because God is a spirit, you're a spirit. And therefore, these teachers argue, you have the capacity to do the same kinds of things that God does by his spirit that you can do in your spirit. And so this whole idea of of human beings Uh, existing as some of these teachers have called them, little gods, as uh, uh, beings who have the capacity to do the same kinds of creative acts that God does. Supposedly, God speaks things into existence by his audible word, and if we uh, use our audible words uh, in believing that what we're saying is true the way God does whenever he does something, then we can also essentially manipulate our reality and make things uh come into manifestation uh by our spoken word because again we're the fundamentally the same kind of being as god
1: right and we and we so are if
2: you take out if you take that out if you take out that trichotomous assumption that the real you is the spirit distinguished from the soul and the body if you if you see that that's not correct that's not biblical then the whole premise for the word of faith view of man as the same kind of being as God is
1: gone, and it's it's uh, if you think that your soul is your intellect, is your thinking, it's your ability to reason, and that's the bad part of you, but the spirit part of you is pure and good, and it's been totally redeemed, and it's just waiting to be godlike. You have to turn off. You have to uh, stop feeding your intellect and your reason and your and your brain. In order for your spirit to do all these great things, boy, is that confusing and and uh, and <laughs> yeah. and damaging yes well the, the fact of
2: the matter is that the words of scripture are directed to the mind of the reader, and the reader is supposed to use his mind or her mind to apprehend the meaning of what God is saying, and then by an act of will, choosing to believe and act upon what God says in his word. So the mind is the uh, connecting uh, organ, if you will, of the human being to the word of God. That's where we uh, come into contact with God's word. That's where we hear what he's saying. It's in the mind. And uh, the mind isn't separate from the body. The mind is intimately connected into our body, into our brain. Uh, They're distinguishable, but they're not separate. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so taking care of your body is important because your body does affect your mind as long as you're in the body. And so it's very important to understand human beings as whole organisms, whole beings. The mind is an essential part of that being, and it's a good part that God made, but that we uh along with our whole being body soul and whatever else you want to say uh is fallen and in need of redemption uh the great commandment jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength those aren't four parts of the human being by the way
1: Mm
2: -hmm. he's simply and he's quoting deuteronomy 6 5 there it's using uh different terminology to sort of uh emphasize the point that with all that you are, including your reasoning ability, you need to love God. So the mind is an important aspect of that function of loving God and loving one another, by the way. And so we neglect the mind and its role in understanding God's Word and living by it at our peril and at the detriment of Christianity as a whole.
1: Right. Boy. And to, to try to picture how it is that we would somehow enable our spirit to be freed up from our thinking. It's just such a horrible burden to place on somebody. If if we're not really intended to live that way, but we're trying to, it seems like we're just uh, making, uh, making ourselves wide open to any kind of manipulation and confusion. And, and of course, anybody who's teaching us how to do that is, doing it through the mind so they're already violating the very thing that they're trying to teach
2: yeah i think some of these teachers have tried to figure out a way to parse that so that they're not being self-contradictory but i agree with you at the end of the day you, you can't escape the the essential role of the mind in understanding whether it's understanding someone else or understanding the bible or you know, even understanding what you're saying at the time, <laughs> you know, we 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 can't do it without the mind, or apart from the mind, or independent of the mind. So, so having made all this uh, point, this, these points about the importance of the issue, perhaps we should explain to people why trichotomy isn't right. Yeah, why it's not biblical. Uh, now, again, the Bible uses a variety of terminology, uh, a variety of terms in reference to. Uh, what we might call physical and non-physical aspects of our being. So I mentioned Mark 12:30, where Jesus, and he's quoting, uh, paraphrasing uh, Deuteronomy 6 5, talks about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Those aren't four parts. There's just four different terms that he's using, kind of layering on uh, you know, piling on different uh, overlapping terms to make the point that we need to love God with all that we are. Uh, you find one or two references uh, that trichotomists use as proof texts to prove trichotomy, most uh, famously, of course, the statement in 1 Thessalonians 5 about uh, God sanctifying body, soul, and spirit. But most of the biblical language, and, and this is, we're talking mostly here about the New Testament. Uh, most most New Testament language about human nature uh, is dichotomous. It talks about the physical and non-physical aspects of human nature. So uh, Jesus talks about the body and the soul in Matthew 10, 28. Uh, Paul can talk about the body and the mind or the body and the spirit or the flesh and the spirit, or the flesh and the heart, or the outer man and the inner man. All of these pairs of terms appear to be pretty much synonymous. They're the physical body, flesh, outer man, and the non-physical, the soul, the mind, the spirit, the heart. And so Paul, and also you see this in James, uh, and as I mentioned in Matthew ten twenty-eight. We see from various uh, parts of the New Testament this pattern of what is usually called dichotomous thinking, or uh, other technical terms have been used, which I won't get into. But they all mean basically the same thing: that human beings are fundamentally twofold in their nature. They have a physical aspect to their nature that's material, that has you know, you know, physical substance that's solid and liquid and Uh, You can touch it and so forth. And then there's the non-physical aspect that includes what we call the mind, uh, the emotions, the will, uh, you know, the heart, uh, the spirit. These all seem to be pretty much overlapping, not necessarily identical in, in their connotations, but they're overlapping or synonymous in their general Uh, focus or reference to the invisible aspect of human nature. And so, once you understand that's the general pattern, then when you see a text like uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, which seems to refer to three parts, or Mark 12.30, which seems to refer to four parts, uh, then you say, now wait a minute, maybe this isn't really trying to lay out, you know, a a formal systematic doctrine of how many parts we have.
1: (laughs) Right. In fact, I was, I was reading your book on that very section, uh, I think, and within that same week, uh, we've been going through the book of Hebrews at my church for uh, the Bible study. And we got to Hebrews 4.12, and that's the one yeah. that I was like, that's the one. I can see how if you just take this word and you pull it out of the uh, rest of the Bible— you can use it to try to make the case that we are just three distinct parts. And I think one of the easiest ways to look at any doctrine is to say, what does the whole of Scripture teach on this? And if this is a really important doctrine, don't you think God would have made it really clear? He would have told us over and over again. You know, if, if we were supposed to be fighting against our reasoning and our thinking, that would, I think, be a lot more clear in Scripture. We would be told, you know, watch out for your thinking, watch out for your brain. It's going to— Cause you not to become as godlike as you're capable of becoming. There, there are no verses that teach anything like that,
2: right? Well, you know Hebrews four twelve. Um, it, it, the way it's usually translated in English, uh, some readers get the misunderstanding or the, the the misperception that what Hebrews is saying there is that God somehow divides or separates the soul from the spirit. I don't know when he's supposed to do that in their thinking, because the text is talking about the word of God penetrating even to the division, is the usual translation of soul and spirit. But if you read more carefully, it's clearly using these terms as uh, synonymous, or you know, to the point where uh, it's very difficult to to separate them in any kind of uh, you know physical or or, or you know, substance uh, way. So it goes on uh, of ju- of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Well, thoughts and intentions aren't two different things, right? Uh, you know, and and so the the idea here is that God's word is able to uh, maybe a, a paraphrase that would get the meaning across clearly to people is He is the Word of God is able to judge or discriminate or discern the godly thoughts and intentions from the ungodly ones, Uh, able to uh, sort of penetrate down into our very uh, heart, soul, spirit, whatever term you want to use there, and judge what's really inside us, what we're really thinking, what we're really willing. And, uh, you know, of course, the point that The writer of Hebrews is making in context, is that the Word of God uh, is important in our lives because through Scripture, through His Word, God uh, sort of brings conviction into us in the innermost uh, part of our being to become aware of our sin and of our need for Jesus as Savior. It's not talking about uh, providing some kind of uh, metaphysical—I'm using the term there differently now—or or being a division of the different parts of the human constitution. That's not what the is talking about at all.
1: Yeah. And it's pretty clear just by reading it in context, you know, reading the whole paragraph, reading the whole passage, that this yeah. isn't making a It's so amazing
2: how often that clears up misunderstandings, isn't it? It's amazing.
1: <laughs> yep. In fact, um, I don't think you heard this in, in our conversations before, but I was very involved for many, many years as a musician on a worship team for a couple of different big churches And a lot of times I would go to two services because, you know, I had had to play. And so I would listen to the sermon more than once. And I would just sit there with my Bible open. And I would look at the passage and I would see the pastor had used one verse, sometimes even just half a verse. And I would sit there reading the entire passage going, wow, that's not what it means. That is not what it means. I'm not a scholar. I don't know the Hebrew or the Greek, but I can see what this means just by reading the whole thing.
2: Yeah. Well, that if meant... we're not if we're not willing to if we're not willing to let that pass when a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon does it, we can't let it pass when a word of faith televangelist does it or even when our own pastor does it.
1: Yes.
2: So this is not meaning saying pointing the finger at them and saying, Look at the bad thing they are doing as if we never have this issue. Hmm. Uh, but Christian pastors and teachers have the responsibility to interpret scripture accurately and faithfully to the context. And it's, it's a standard that we need to hold ourselves and those with whom we're associated to that standard. It's a high standard that we need to maintain it and uphold it for everyone so that when we uh, notice that not happening in a way that brings about or supports some kind of false doctrine, we're not being hypocritical or inconsistent to point that out.
1: Well, it's also, uh, I think, really common for people who are sincere in their faith. They want to be a team player. They want to be a helper, not a herder. They want to be an encourager, not a discourager. There's all these uh, things they've been told over and over again. If you're going to come to church, you know, you should be a willing participant. You should be willing to help your pastor. And um, I think we take that to sometimes an extreme, and we are too willing to overlook things. You know, Uh because we want to be a team player, and we've been told, you know, don't be negative. Well, it's not negative to compare what somebody teaches to the Word of God. And any pastor who is telling you that, I don't know, maybe he's afraid, you know, because he's not really sure of what he's teaching, and so he's he's using kind of a control tactic. You know, don't don't be, right. Good don't be, teachers,
2: good teachers welcome hard questions.
1: Yeah, yeah, and we should. Um, and, and this is another thing that I noticed. If you want to close off uh difficult questions if you want to shut people down one of the things that i've seen and heard is for a pastor to actually say everything i teach is straight out of the bible you know it's i don't get right. my ideas from anywhere else it's right from the bible and you know uh, i i dare you to question me because well you know and as soon as they say that they actually cause people to kind of go Okay, good. I can trust this guy from now on. I'm not actually going to ever check anything he says because he just told me that he bases everything on the Bible. Now he yeah. may believe you know what, it. You know
2: what uh, you know what Reagan said about the Soviets? He said trust but verify.
1: Yeah, trust <laughs> but verify.
2: <laughs> so, yeah. you know, if your pastor says he he's just going by the Bible, great. I'm glad you know he's he's now acknowledged what the standard needs to be. And so that doesn't relieve the person in the congregation from the responsibility of comparing what the pastor is saying or the Sunday school teacher is saying or the radio evangelist is saying with what the Bible says.
1: Especially when you're talking about somebody who's really famous, who's, you know, you'll never meet him in person, you'll never talk to him, but you like their show or you like their their, their book or their YouTube channel. Those people, um, they really have the ability to manipulate through the use of... I'm the only guy with a microphone. If I'm the only guy with a microphone, I can I completely control the content of everything that I say and everything that surrounds me. And, you know, because we don't have people in a, in a church where the pastor is just another person that you can talk to on a regular basis, it becomes much more difficult to hold these people accountable. And, uh, you know, I don't know how much of my—I don't remember what I told you about my story, but I was just doing all this research for my own little church— And it turns out that it didn't really go anywhere. I I wound up leaving that church and we still have friends there. And, you know, I I have disagreements, but I realized that, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't on the board. I wasn't an elder pastor was pleasant and said, you know, you really need to go somewhere else if that's how you feel. And I did. And what that turned into though, is me writing articles and helping people think through these things because they found me uh, largely through Chris Roseborough and the fighting for the faith podcast. But you know there's a um an interesting aspect to your book um that you wrote this book in two thousand and one when the word of faith movement in my mind was uh more distinct as a kind of self contained movement within the broader pop evangelical realm and I've seen nothing but the growth of word of faith ideas well, like you said in the beginning of our interview that somebody was using language in a prayer at your church that sounded very much like a a word of faith background, and I, I'm yeah. I think that um, you need to write this book again, or somebody. I mean, we need to get the message out over and over again because we're outnumbered about ten thousand to one. I mean, I'll give you an example. I posted a six minute video on my dinky little YouTube channel just uh, maybe three weeks ago, and it was against Benny Hinn, and it was by his nephew Costi Hinn, who has become a uh, really uh, serious preacher who figured out in just the last six or seven years that I'm not a Christian. I don't even know what the gospel is. He was confronted with his sin and with the prosperity preaching of his uncle, even though he was very close to his uncle. So he was on a news program. I shared this video on my little YouTube channel, and then I started engaging people in comments because I was frustrated by all the dumb things they were saying. And just (laughs) about three weeks later, it's gotten— I don't know, 55,000 views and over 700 comments. And about half of the comments are from people saying, you know, this costy hen needs to be quiet. He's just jealous of his uncle. You know Benny Hinn is a great man of God because he's anointed, and God chose him to become wealthy. And how dare you question the man of God? I mean, all these cliches. There's no right, right. There's no use of scripture. There's no use of even a, a a cogent argument. They're just repeating catchphrases that they've heard over and over again. And it really, yeah. it really bothers me because it's growing. It's getting worse. And the Word of Faith movement is not a small thing it's actually kind of rebranded itself the new apostolic reformation and uh people who probably never would have listened to maybe a a Kenneth Copeland or a Benny Hinn 20 30 years ago now are listening to people who share much of the same theology bad theology like a like a Bill Johnson
4: yeah
2: well you know you've got uh almost a never ending 24 hour you know, 365-day commercial running, except with rare rare interruptions, you know, by others on on TBN for this stuff. Um, You know, there are exceptions on TBN, but I mean, most of it uh, is either advocating it or friendly to it. And then you've got you know, every Christian bookstore in the country has shelves full of this stuff.
1: Yeah, and Walmart, and Hobby not Lobby, not necessarily
2: all. On, yeah, not necessarily all in one place either, so people can be sure they're not getting it. Uh, so there's it, there's a lot of um, it, it's it's pervasive. You know, uh, it says something distressing to me, and I don't know if this statistic is still correct, but it, it probably is, or at least close to being correct that the uh, largest church in America is the church pastored by Joel Osteen. Right. Uh, that that's that's worrisome. Uh not because I have anything against Osteen personally. I don't have any axe to grind, but it's it says something uh, unfortunate about the state of American Christianity uh that this is what is extremely popular. But perhaps as we were talking about earlier, I think we alluded to this earlier. Uh, biblical, sound, sober Christianity has really, for all intents and purposes, almost never been popular. (laughs) Uh, It's not designed to be. It's designed to be a faith that is taking the narrow path. Uh, And so we're going to see pretenders, we're going to see false teachers, we're going to see uh, flaky doctrine, uh, we're going to see, you know, watered-down pop gospel teaching, uh, getting a lot more attention and popularity from the prevailing culture, as long as uh, that is the case, that most people are not really searching for the truth, they're searching for something to make them feel better. Right or something that will help them be more successful in their life or help
1: them to keep and their kids it, off of drugs keep their kids you know on the straight right. and narrow all of these
2: teachers their that's their pitch listen to what i say because i'm going to help you solve your problems and if if christianity plays a role in their explanation of how that happens it's a marginal role at best right it's mostly self-help. You can do it. Uh, You have to believe in yourself. You have to have a positive mental attitude and and all the rest of it. And it gets sugar-coated with Christianese. Joel Osteen can do a 28-minute program uh, where even if he mentions God or Christ, they don't really have anything to do with the point that he's making. And then at the end, he can give a perfunctory 30 second altar call that sounds like it's out of a Baptist church. And it's jarring, but that's what he does because that's what his father did. And because, it, although Osteen is much more blatant about the disconnect there, and because it gives, it supposedly validates what he's doing as Christian, but it really does not. If you spend, Most of your program explains to people why they're really not that bad and they can do it and they can be successful and all the rest of it. uh, Then to tell them you need to, you know, confess Jesus as your savior, uh, it's without an explanation as to why that really is important. And so it's the state of Christianity in our country today is something to be concerned about. But the good news is there are a lot of Christians. Who feel very strongly about the importance of sound doctrine, about the importance of knowing what you believe and why you believe, uh, there are programs and books and ministries and schools and other organizations all over this country that are working hard uh, to advance that uh, that point of view, and and so that can be encouraging. We we should we should uh, be thankful for that. I'm thankful for you and what you're doing.
1: Well, uh, that's,
2: that's a really good point because I think it's I think it's very important, and I think that there's a lot to be encouraged by at the same time.
1: Well, you know what? You just uh, capped off the program perfectly. We're we're at an hour now, so it's almost like you <laughs> you've done this before, haven't you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> guilty as charged. Yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> that's a great ending point. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say thank you and uh, uh, let's do this again. Thanks so much, Rob. Uh, thank you. Look forward to it.